Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi there, welcome back to the Leech Fest podcast. My name is Raluca, and with me is... Mia. Mia Mulder. Extraordinaire. Esquire. His, uh, resident historian and uh, quali- quality memer. <laughs> quality memer? Quality memer. Yeah. If, you, if you see memes on our Twitter, that's me, usually. That's what I do. How are you doing, Mia? I'm doing great. Um, I've done a lot of research for this uh, for this episode. Oh my god, me too. I have I have so much yeah. about Ooh. this. I'm really worried it's gonna end up being like four hours long. No, we have we have to have this be shorter. We need to constrain contain our own excitement. Yeah. But we also talked about potentially doing a sort of another like a episode, a follow like up. A follow-up. To this yeah, one. I think doing research for this, I realized how how. And and okay, we haven't really introduced a topic yet. It's about vaccines. Because like vaccines, <laughs> the autism causer, the, uh, the the child killer. Okay, uh, the mercury sh- poison. Sh- she is joking. I feel like I want to say this. She is joking. I am. I have somehow become anti-vax. <laughs> um, but yeah, not. the the episode is about vaccines, and there's a lot to say about vaccines. Obviously, it's it's really complicated. I'm by no means an expert. Like I st- I have. You know, I have a background in medical science, but it's still like it's it's very complicated, mm. and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff about like anti-vax too, which I think you can't really cover. Like that that whole yeah. thing can go into an entirely like new episode. Yeah, the I thought you said talking about anti-vax too, like the sequel to anti-vax. <laughs> no, anti-vax too, anti-vax harder. <laughs> um. Yeah, we were talking about something, yeah, and then we just, like, entirely jumped into it. It's great. It's great. That's the, how this podcast goes, usually. We we have a vague topic, and then we go into tangents. And that's fun. And then we go into science, by one of us painfully dragging the podcast back on topic. Before we go into the podcast, we have a patron that we would like to thank. We would like to thank Evelina Fincher for this episode, as the random, the, the lucky golden ticket... To the chocolate factory of this podcast, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate you and, of course, all our patrons to help us host this podcast and uh, produce more fun episodes. So, what is a vaccine? Like, <laughs> we, we're, we're living in unprecedented times... I, we all long for precedent at times, but we're now, we live in a world where there's a lot of talk about vaccines, generally, because of an ongoing pandemic, if you haven't heard, dear listener. but Imagine not knowing. I Wait, w- there's a pandemic? <laughs> COVID? I heard there was this actor that was like, um, I think he was on some sort of retreat for like a week or two. I, it was, it was uh, Jared Leto. I think he was like in a desert retreat for like the first... Two weeks when everything yeah. like went down, and so he he had to like come back, and people had to be like, "Hey, by the way, when you were gone, a whole <laughs> pandemic happened." 
Uh, I remember early in the pandemic also, there was a Big Brother season that had started. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know Big Brother, I am obviously a huge fan and continuous watcher. They don't have any contact with the outside world. They don't get to read newspapers. They don't get to have access to social media. They that's like part of the thing and so they were in lockdown but not knowing it Mm. they had no idea that they were in lockdown as the world was shutting down as uh, borders were closing they were drinking alcohol and partying and no one could tell them that the world was ending i think they found out eventually though but how long did they go without knowing a few weeks i think but we are currently fixing this pandemic aren't we with Mm. vaccines Mm -hmm. there are a bunch of them But Mm -hmm. we're not going to talk about COVID vaccines specifically. We're going to talk about vaccines generally. So we're going to talk about, um, you know, like the basics of vaccines. We're going to talk about the history of vaccines. Um, And then I'm going to go a bit into like the science behind vaccines. Like what kind of vaccines are there? What kind of different types? And I will go into the mRNA vaccine Mm -hmm. specifically. So, you know, we will mention it, but it's not about... This episode is not just about the COVID vaccine. Yeah. But okay, let's talk about vaccines. Um, let's start with, like, real simple, like, the basics of mm-hmm. what a vaccine is. The point of the vaccine is that they activate the adaptive immune system and they create immunological memory. This means that the body learns how to produce antibodies for this specific pathogen, so the next time when an actual infection happens, the body recognizes the pathogen and then can like effectively neutralize mm-hmm. it. So you don't completely die from unknown things. Like you're you're basically giving your immune system like data entry, being like, "Hey, there are a bunch of viruses out there. Here are a few." A, a, a sample platter, a cheese plate of yeah, various it's, viruses. Exactly, it's like a sample platter. And, yeah. That's yeah. Um, I actually found um, a cheese plate of bacteria. <laughs> uh, there's this metaphor that I read about somewhere is that it's like giving a dog like a sock of a missing person and letting the dog smell it and be like, okay, now you know the scent. Go mm. find the person. Oh, okay, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I thought those Because pretty... the dog can easily kill the sock, and once it knows oh what the scent is, they can easily kill the person. Okay, I, th- I it thought easily. it was a nice metaphor, but <laughs> all right. Listen, I'm just keeping the analogy straight. Okay. sounds simple right mm-hmm. introduce a tiny bit into the immune system and your body learns how to fight it um and today we all sort of kind of know a little bit about it but it wasn't always this way for a long time in human history we obviously haven't known how bacteria works how viruses work where they come from and how, what we can do to fight it mm-hmm. but the history of vaccines is to like a large part the history of smallpox like that when we're talking about early vaccines when we talk about early like immune immunological history we talk about like how people used to treat smallpox because that, that was one of the more common diseases that people also kind of had some grip about how maybe to deal with uh, various european communities had a variety of ways to contain it like either by quarantine or by uh, burning the bodies of those who had it mm. uh, alive very horrifying the earliest sort of recollection we have or like the mentions we have of any sort of treatment to prevent a disease comes from china china (laughs) 
as always on this podcast, the Chinese were first. A lot when a lot comes to a lot of medical medical history, the Chinese were like pretty early. Uh, there are uh, several accounts from the 1500s that describe smallpox inoculation as being practiced in China. Some historians note that in the late 1600s, Emperor Qianxi, who had survived smallpox as a, as a child, had his children inoculated. And he like wrote them a big letter being like, I have, in my infinite wisdom, given you weak smallpox so that you do not have big smallpox. And this method, this very early, early method of, of, of doing it, and we don't really know where it started. It should be mentioned. Um, some cultures have been doing it for, like, since time immemorial. And I'll get into that a bit more later, too. Uh, but the, the, the accounts that say that... that this inoculation existed in China in the 1500s are from European perspectives. In China, th they were seen as like, oh, this is just something that some people do. It's not widespread. It wasn't popular until, yeah, the 1500s, 1600s, where the emperor started doing it. But it was seen as like, oh, this is a weird practice that, that some wise men do for some reason. That's weird. The method that the old wise men would use in China was not as elegant as today, obviously. They would take scabs from patients who had had a mild outbreak of smallpox. And they would ground them up into a powder, uh, and they would blow that powder up the nostrils of healthy people. And who doesn't love a little, nos a little scab snort? By the way, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but I was also reading about this, and apparently they were, they were blowing up the powder up the right nostril for boys and left nostril for girls. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I wonder oh, I wonder why. It's, like it's I don't boys. really know why what what the explanation behind it is, but it's, it's it was I don't know. I, I thought it was an interesting fun fact. All things balanced as it as it all should be. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a good point to note that the smallpox virus is actually two kinds of viruses. There are two strains. Smallpox is sometimes called the variola virus. So there is variola minor, which is the minor kind of the vaccine. Can you guess what the other one is? Variola major, because he's got a major bummer. Um, if you had variola minor, you had a much higher chance of surviving. You would still get smallpox. Smallpox is um, uh, still pretty bad, but it would be much, much milder. Um, and the Chinese actually banned taking scabs from people who had the major outbreaks. Obviously, they didn't like differentiate between like, ah, this person has this virus strain, and this person has this one. But if someone has a mild outbreak and someone has a severe outbreak, then they know that. Um, and they also knew that if you tried to take scabs from people who had a much more severe outbreak, there were a much higher chance of complications. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you did this method, you could give the person you were trying to inoculate smallpox, which isn't great. That's kind of the opposite of what you're trying to do. And this method is called variolation because of the variola virus. This type of inoculation may also have been practiced by scratching matter from a smallpox sore into the skin, like a very bad lotion, like a cursed lotion of disease. And the reason why they only used minor victims here is because if they used the skin, the lotion solution, was that if you weren't careful... It could also spread smallpox because you could give someone smallpox like a mild case of it, but then they could spread it and suddenly you could have a smallpox outbreak. And it's difficult to pinpoint when this started, but there are some sources who say that, in, that they did this in China as early as 200 BCE, which is kind of cool considering we didn't have a smallpox like vaccine until much later. 
as Europeans were interacting with China in various parts of the world, they got wind of variolation. Variolation became a thing that uh, various scholars wrote back to the West being like, hey, in China, they're doing something against smallpox with varying results. Being a bit skeptical of this Eastern medicine, which obviously can't be as superior as good old British medicine, which involved just burning people with smallpox, <laughs> clearly superior. A noted doctor, Thomas Sydenham in the 1600s, had, had, had observed that the rich seemed to have a higher mortality rate from smallpox than the poor. This led him to conclude that contemporary medical treatments in England, like burning people alive and rubbing, rubbing them down with cold cloth, uh, may actually make things worse than doing nothing, which led people to sort of try to come up with something better. And this opened up the medical community to sort of try to find uh, other solutions from other cultures. Another uh, person in the 1600s, Cotton Mayer, a Boston minister, actually received a gift from a Libyan-born slave uh, named... And I'm sorry because I'm going to butcher this name because I don't really know Libyan names that well and I'm, I'm very sorry. Onesimus, who bore a scar from a smallpox variolation in Africa. Uh, and this Boston minister received this as a gift and... Uh, Mather, Cotton Mather, the, the man who received the gift, he inquired among other slaves and found out that many of the slaves had been variolated, and many thought that they were immune to smallpox. Eventually, uh, he would submit this idea of variolation to English medical journals and wanted to promote it in the colonies that would eventually become America. So we, we're having like small individual accounts of variolation reaching Western medical communities. Variolation also became common in the Ottoman Empire, which was located in the sort of midpoint between Asia and Africa. They had seen that it was very positive via trade routes in Asia and Africa, but it was brought to them primarily via their neighbors in the Caucasus, the Circassians, because their women have apparently done this also since time immemorial, and they did it to their own children when they were older than six months old, so then when, when they were babies. Uh, and this was also reported to the British in the early 1700s. So we're also seeing that, like, the Chinese may have been first with variolation, but we can see that variolation also, like, independently springs up all over the world. But it only really enters Western medicine properly with uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, which is a good name, who had her son, um, her husband was actually the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. So she would often be there, she would often travel there, she would often be in Constantinople. This was before it was named Istanbul, by the way. And uh, he had, uh, she had her son variolated in Constantinople after having seen the, the ravages of, of, of smallpox in England. She brought this back to England, where she had a doctor variolate her daughter when there was a fear of an outbreak uh, breaking out in, in England, much to the criticism of, of, of high-ranking uh, aristocrats people uh, and people in England. So did the doctors in Britain do this? No. This is the first, uh, the, the first variolation in England was this variolation that um, Montague, like, made a doctor, Dr. Charles Maitland. Mm -hmm. So did she teach him how to do it, or was, was it slowly entering, like, the British consciousness as well, and, like, doctors were starting to do it as well? I think that the, uh, I think that, like, the, the practice had been written down and, mm -hmm. and shown, but it hadn't really entered, it hadn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time it was done on English soil 
at least that we know of. And this is in 17, um, in 1718. So it's pretty late on the Europeans are coming in on the stage, as with many things. Uh, she would come under, again, she would come under heavy criticism for this, for advocating variolation, because she talked also among, you know, other aristocrats, like, hey, you should, you should do this. It will prevent you from dying. And she fell under, like, very heavily crit criticized. But it did slowly start to spread uh, because it became apparent that this did protect against smallpox. Uh, without uh, variolation, up to 20 to 30% of people who were infected died from smallpox, compared to only 2 to 3% who had been variolated. So it became, it became popular, and in an outbreak in 1738, it became very obvious that this variolation worked. We, we, it, we accidentally got a, like a large-scale study of, of the differences. Uh, a smallpox epidemic struck Charleston in South Carolina. Of the 441 people who were variolated, only 4% of them died, while 18% of the people who were naturally infected died. Those who, who, those who had been variolated were mostly rich people, because they could afford it, like they could afford the help of a doctor who could do it. Uh, at the same time, though, and I think it should be mentioned because smallpox was also used as a sort of biological weapon occasionally. At the same time, the same epidemic killed half of the Cherokee Indian population in the vicinity because they got no medical help from from the from the colonizers and they had no access to variolation whatsoever. But we talk about variolation here is a different thing from vaccines. When people talk about the history of vaccines, there seems to be this idea that in the 1700s, uh, a, a, a guy, I'm going to go into this guy, kind of just came up with it from nothing. He realized a thing. Uh, most specifically, he realized this was Edward Jenner, the story of Edward Jenner, the legend of Edward Jenner, the inventor of the vaccine. Uh, I'm going to tear I'm gonna tear him a new one here because I, <laughs> I don't like him. He became interested in a disease called cowpox because the legend goes that he saw that milkmaids who worked with cows who had contracted cowpox were much less likely to die or even get become infected by smallpox. And the reason why I had this like long thing about like how slaves were uh, had been variolated, how people in Africa were variolated, how um, they did in China in the Ottoman Empire is because I kind of want to deconstruct this idea that like vaccines were this it came from nothing and it was mm -hmm. an English invention that mm -hmm. saved the world because he worked on like he knew a variolation at Regener. he knew that this was a thing that that existed. He just had the idea that, like, oh, hey, that the cowpox and the variolation have similar results. There's something there. And the, the milkmaid story might also be a myth entirely. Um, it, it's, it's also uh, possible that he just did, like, various experimentation and discovered it uh, on that, in that way. Now, cowpox is a different illness, obviously. Uh, it's an uncommon illness in cattle. It's pretty mild in cows, but it can spread from cows to humans via sores on cows. Uh, during an infection, dairy workers may have pustules on their hands, and sufferers can spread this to other humans. Now we know, in the modern day, that cowpox, and the reason why cowpox infection also protects you from smallpox, is that cowpox belongs to the orthopox family of viruses, which also includes horsepox virus and monkeypox virus, and also, of course, the variola virus. So, obviously, Jenner didn't really know what he was, why this worked, but he noticed something, that something was working and was like, hmm, Interesting. And what Jenner did in 1789 was he revised variolation by replacing the virus, like the, the, the viral material that was previously taken from sores and scabs and stuff like that, by taking it from, from people who had cowpox instead, which led to 
much fewer complications. It didn't spread smallpox at all, but it had similar protective properties. So suddenly you reduced a lot of the risk while having very similar benefits. And this is where we get the word vaccine. Because it comes from cow. Mm-hmm. The Latin word for cow. The Latin word vaca. for vaca. So it comes, it is variolation, but he just replaced because variola comes from the virus there. And he just said, like, okay, but cow though. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get it. That's why vaccines are called vaccines. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. So, you know, inject your cows. There was some skepticism around this. Oh, yeah. In 1801, the Russian empress encourages vaccination. She goes as far as giving uh, an orphan the first smallpox vaccine uh, and naming the orphan Vaksinov <laughs> and providing the younger with a pension for life. <laughs> so I just... This poor... This, like, this orphan is, ca- is, for this. <laughs> is just this sort of um it was a young girl um uh, this orphan doesn't didn't sign up for this it's kind of like a guinea pig mm-hmm. like we're gonna test this vaccine thing if you die you're an orphan it's fine but if you're if you're if you live oh nice then we can use it on everyone mm-hmm. uh getting renamed to vaccinov <laughs> that's not my name what's my mean? name i guess i called vaccine now yeah it's my name um during this time vaccination becomes very popular because smallpox is still ravaging the, the world. Smallpox is one of the most deadly diseases in in history, both at this point and just generally, right? And it hasn't gone away. Um, variolations also become popular because it's a lot easier to get scabs from like a buddy who, ha- <laughs> who has had smallpox. But it, this practice spreads and it spreads quick. Governments start realizing, because now we're in the early 1800s, governments start realizing that they exist. And obviously, if you can end smallpox epidemics in your country, oh, that would be, that's the best advantage you have over all the other countries. Because now, suddenly, your workers will survive. Um, There won't be endless death everywhere. However, vaccines are also becoming more advanced. Uh, Scientists are realizing that, like, okay, we can take... We can take the virus directly from cows. We can potentially breed cows. Some people start experimenting with that, in- intentionally infecting cows with the virus to sort of build a viral load and then using that to uh, create vaccines. And people are realizing that, hang on, we could do this with this disease. What if we can do it with other diseases too? And sci- scientists begin experimenting wildly. This keeps going until 1840, when Britain just outright bans variolation in favor for vaccination. Because, like I mentioned, uh, variolation does sometimes cause smallpox outbreaks. It does sometimes kill the individual who has it, does sometimes give them smallpox. It's a very Yeah, it's a bit problematic. Rough, rough around the edges practice. Yeah, it doesn't... You're just rubbing pustules. Yeah. We love to rub pustules on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, William Farr in the British Lancet, characterized the Britain's National Vaccine Act of this year as inadequate because five London children would still die every single day from smallpox. Uh, but this act, this uh, uh, British National Vaccine Act, offered free vaccinations for infants. And it's the first instance of free medical service in the country. People saw it as a, like a public service thing. This is a universal good for everyone. Um, but they also banned variolation. And the medical profession was like, yes, finally. At long last, because now it wasn't just doctors who were doing variolation, like 
now people really were like, oh, you've you've been variolated? Let's rub blood together yeah. and I'll also get it. And then suddenly you have a smallpox outbreak in, in the slums. Uh, during this time, governments are making huge effort to, to combat epidemics. Scientists are working more to getting more vaccines um, for other diseases and they're getting massive funding. And they are, uh, suddenly there's a whole industry about vaccine and vaccine production and vaccine improvement. But during this time and later, as new types of vaccines are being developed, there are also some events that are all called disasters. Um, and they are they're usually called uh, like a school disaster or a, a small town disaster. Because sometimes in early diphtheria vaccines, people were starting to make uh, vaccines for diphtheria. Um, diphtheria? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. <laughs> diphtheria? Diphtheria. Diphtheria. Yeah. Okay. They were they were uh, they were producing uh, diphtheria vaccines, but if you didn't make the vaccine just right, just right, a whole batch could become contaminated or could reactivate and become a fully activated virus. Because of this, vaccines became more regulated and became more dominated by governments more than private companies. Because private companies were getting in on the action too, because everyone wanted to get vaccinated. It was a vaccine craze. And, but this also fueled anti-vaccination efforts. People were skeptical of anti-vaccination of vaccination for a long time, basically as long as it, as it existed. But here is an event, I feel like, oh, the vaccine kills you <laughs> um, if it's not properly like regulated or made. Um, that's kind of a, a logical reason to be against the vaccine or like argue or be skeptical of the vaccine. Like, yeah, absolutely. It I could mean... be lethal. Exactly. I mean, back in the day when the early pharmaceutical industries were still kind of new and there was not a lot of regulation around what they're allowed to do mm -hmm. and like the safety procedures in place, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And it was reasonable that some people were skeptical about it. I mean, you had all these quacks also coming up with so-called vaccines that were inefficient at best and harmful at worst. Yeah. Like, you know, it's reasonable because especially since you mentioned quacks, like... Some doctors would just, like, make up their own vaccine and mm -hmm. sell it to, like, impoverished communities, being like, I can make sure that you don't get smallpox or diphtheria or any disease. I have, like, an all-cure. All mm. um, you know, people would buy it because they were desperate, and then, you know, they could get seriously injured by this. Mm -hmm. um, however, here we sort of have a vaccine industry, right? I feel like th this is usually where people stop talking about vaccine history, like... Uh, Jenner invented vaccines, and then then it was all la di -duda. But obviously, like more things happened in the field of of, of medical science and vaccine science. Uh, in eighteen sixty, the French Academy of Sciences had issued a challenge to French scientists, because before this time, there was a commonly understood idea that viruses and bacteria came from just life, wherever there was life there would also be bacteria. This is a theory called spontaneous generation. Uh, and the idea was that you can't really prevent smallpox. Like, you, you, can, you can inoculate yourself against it, you can do quarantines, you can keep it from spreading. But, like, the idea was, like, some, somewhere, sometime, somewhere, someone, the, the smallpox virus is just going to appear. And now we have to deal with this all over again. And, and Louis Pasteur took on this challenge. The, uh, the guy who invented pasteurization. He showed in a precise series of experiments that uh, if you had like flasks of broth and water, uh, they wouldn't spoil if he could prevent organisms from getting in it. And suddenly, the medical community realized, hey, that means that 
the virus has to spread from somewhere to somewhere. It doesn't just arrive. That means maybe we can't start containing it forever. Maybe we can even eradicate some diseases. Maybe we can completely fix epidemics. The animal productions of vaccines skyrocket. They, they're not breeding cows by the thousands, infecting them with cowpox and using their lymphs now. They can, they, they've, they've really perfected the science of how to get like, the most virus out of, out of cows. It wasn't until 1879 when the first laboratory vaccine was created. And it wasn't actually for smallpox. And again, it's our, it's our boy uh, Louis, Louis Pasty, Pasty Louis, who produced the, the first laboratory-developed vaccine. He produced a vaccine for chicken cholera, which uh, he named Pasteurella uh, multicida. Uh, and he managed to weaken, weaken the bacteria, because people were really realizing how to do that. And he came upon the method by doing this by accident. Uh, in his lab, he was, he was studying uh, cholera by injecting chickens with live bacteria and recording the fatal progression of how the chickens died. And he instructed an assistant to eject the, the chickens with a fresh culture of the bacteria before a holiday. But the uh, assistant forgot, uh, and when the assistant returned a month later, he carried out Pasteur's wishes. But, uh, like, later. Too late. But the chickens were showing mild size of the disease survived. When they were healthy again, Pasteur injected them with fresh bacteria, and the chickens did not become ill. They had become vaccinated and he reasoned that he reasoned that the factor that made the bacteria less deadly was apparently exposure to oxygen uh, vaccine efforts continue in 1898 uh, britain bans arm-to-arm vaccine transmissions which is basically just like a, an advanced form of variolation uh, they put up a syringe in your arm from someone who has been vaccinated someone who hasn't been vaccinated exchange some viral loads and then you're good vaccines becomes more effective uh, vaccines become more diverse. The last case of naturally occurring smallpox in the U.S. developed in Hidalgo County, Texas, and been the only other smallpox infection in the U.S. had come from people who were traveling into the country. No one were like community transmitting smallpox. And in the nineteen in nineteen eighty, they had actually eliminated smallpox from the earth because international vaccines efforts had been like making them more available, more effective. Keep vaccinating everyone all over, over and over. So the development of the smallpox vaccine and like variolation, that constituted the foundation of what is now modern vaccination. There are a few different kinds of vaccines and I wanted to go a bit into detail as to what they are because vaccines can be very different. So the live attenuated vaccine is, I guess that could be using cowpox to inoculate humans. Mm. That would be an example of using like a live attenuated vaccine. Like that's the, the most rudimentary form mm. that you, is using what... a virus that's like alive. Yeah, well. exactly. So live vaccines use a weakened uh, form of the germ that causes a disease. For most modern vaccines, this weakening is achieved through genetic modification of the germ. And it's funny that you mentioned Louis Pasteur and his work on cholera, but he actually worked on anthrax and rabies as well. And, and so his work consisted of exposing the pathogens to oxygen and heat and weakening, but not killing them. In the early 20th century, French physician Albert Calmette and veterinarian Camille Guérin developed uh, tuberculosis, do you like my French 
my French pronunciation, they developed a tuberculosis vaccine. So they also weakened a bovine strain of the bacterium by passing 230 generations of it through like artificial growth mediums and selecting for weaker and weaker strains mm. of the bacterium. And they took it from cows. Yeah, exactly. It was as, a... as with history, cow, cows are like humanities. We stand cows. We stand cows. They've done so much for us. Similarly, vaccines against measles, mumps, and rubella were initially developed with weakened viral strains. In the case of rubella, the work was done by developing a strain of the virus that could only survive at temperatures below 37 degrees Celsius. So they were not able to actually live within the human body. Mm -hmm. Because the human body doesn't have those temperatures, as far as we know. So live attenuated vaccines create a very strong immune response because they are so similar to the infection that they're trying to prevent. However, because they contain a small amount of the weakened uh, virus, people with very weak immune systems are usually not able to take this sort of vaccine. And also these live vaccines need to be kept cool so they don't travel well, which means that they can't really be used in the field or in countries that don't have like uh, refrigeration facilities. Mm. Another type of vaccine I'm going to talk about is inactivated vaccines. So again, like the problem with attenuated viruses is that they are not, it's it's a little risky, but also because they are still alive, mutations are possible. And in some rare cases, the vaccine can cause a disease instead of actually preventing mm. it. Um, and that's where inactivated vaccines come in. So inactivated vaccines use bacteria or viruses that have been killed or modified so that they cannot replicate. Or modified so they can't replicate? Yeah, for vi Sterilized viruses. Yeah. Well, because you can't really kill a virus, right? So you have to just... Because a virus yeah, is not alive. I guess it's not alive. even alive. Viruses are messed up, yeah. They're messed up. We, like, I feel like we could make a whole episode just like, what's the deal with viruses? What's the deal? It would be an hour of me just being like, what is, what's the deal? <laughs> Why did it exist? Where did it come from? Mia being confused by viruses for two hours. Wait, where did he come? Where did viruses come from? Where did they come from? Rascals. Rascals. Um, anyway, so in the 19th and the 20th century, researchers developed vaccines against cholera, pertussis, influenza, and more by killing the pathogen entirely. Uh, this was usually done by heat or formalin, which is a diluted version of formaldehyde. What? B boiled bacteria. <laughs> Delicious. I <laughs> love my... I love some pasta with some boiled bacteria. Yum, yum, yum. So Jonas's Salk's breakthrough polio vaccine, which was approved in 1955, was based on formalin-killed polio virus. Did, did, didn't he... I, this might this might not be relevant at all for the podcast, but like he, I think he developed the polio vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think he also sold the patent for it for like a dollar. Because, like, he invented it, and, like, because America is what America is, um, weird patent laws. Like, I think he just sold the patent for a dollar, and now it's, like, publicly available, and anyone can make a polio vaccine. Good for him. So, toxoid vaccines is another kind. They use an inactivated toxin made by the germ that causes a disease. So, that w so an example would be the tetany bacteria that causes tetanus, or the diphtheria bacteria. So, the, th this kind of vaccines create immunity to the toxin instead of the germ. Both the diphtheria and the tetanus vaccine was developed in the early 1920s and er entered circulation in the 40s. And it was widely used in World War II. Mm. Um, and it really decreased like preventable death oh yeah like people like most deaths in wars is because of a disease it's not mm. because of bullets or bombs it's like mm. disease mm. so military applications for vaccine was like huge because 
more soldiers alive means you win. Then, in the late 1940s and beyond, subunit vaccines started being developed. These vaccines use specific pieces of the germ, like the protein, sugar, or the capsid, which is like the casing around the germ, which allows the immune system to recognize the pathogen based on the specific antigen uh, contained in the vaccine. These vaccines are used to protect against hepatitis B, HPV, uh, pneumococcal disease, and shingles, to name a few. The problem with subunit vaccines is that they don't always create such a strong or long-lasting immune response as, like, live vaccines. Mm -hmm. But on the on the other hand, like, they can be used by people with weakened immune systems. Yeah, like, they're safer. Yeah. And another problem with uh, this kind of vaccines is that they usually require adjuvants, like aluminum and squalene, um, to, to be added to the vaccine. Squalene? Squalene oil, yeah. What is that? <laughs> It's it's like an oil that is naturally found in um, like cells, so adjuvants usually just help to strengthen and like lengthen the immune response to the vaccine. But also they are often the target of like misconception from anti-vax mm. groups. So even though they're completely safe, people don't like seeing you know mercury, yeah. aluminum mm. in like the in the ingredients. In the ingredients, so which kind of sucks because like a lot of them are like totally safe. Oh yeah, and, they're uh, totally safe. But the scientists thing... sort of have to like invent new ones because people are scared of, of big words. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that really happens or can happen is that um, it can cause like, you know, local reactions like a sore arm mm. um, and things like that. So, you know, that's also like anti-vax people usually take that and run with it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to. Okay, I don't. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time like making fun of of anti vaxxers because I think like because we're gonna do that later in a bit. <laughs> well, I mean, I still want to look at it. I don't know. I, I I don't I don't want to just say that you know they're stupid and they don't know what they're talking about. I think that that it's a real problem and it's it's mm. hurting everyone. Like, I think it comes from a, from disinformation for sure. But I think that there's also. I think a lot of it is also due to like culture and how they how a lot of people feel like they belong in society. Mm. Um, so you know, I think that making fun of anti-vaxxers is not necessarily the best way to go about it mm. when it comes to like actually solving the problem. It's very true. Like we, you know, having a constructive dialogue is probably the best way to do it. Mm. Uh, building mutual trust and stuff like that. Mm. On the other hand, it is very funny and very easy. <laughs> It is very easy to make fun of them, for sure. So I mean, no, there there are sides to there there are arguments <laughs> to both sides here. That's true. Um, okay, before we move on to anti-vaxxing, though, I wanted to talk about the mRNA um, kind of vaccine because mm -hmm. the Pfizer vaccine uses mRNA, the Moderna vaccine uses mRNA, and I, for COVID, for COVID, exactly. Mm. And there's a lot of misinformation going around, and so I just wanted to spend a bit of time, like talking a bit about you know, how it works and what it is mm -hmm. and why some people are afraid of it and kind of just like, you know, mm -hmm. bust some myths. Bust some myths. <laughs> is it going to turn me into the coronavirus? Um, no. Damn it. <laughs> okay, so listen. So most vaccines introduce parts of a germ into a body, right? Yes. M mRNA vaccines actually teach ourselves how to make the protein or like even just a piece of protein that is going to trigger the immune response. And then, of course, the immune response produces antibodies and protects us from, from developing the infection, of yeah. course. So, do you know what mRNA is? No. Okay. It is the intermediate step between the translation of, of DNA to a protein. 
But so the mRNA molecule that is contained in the vaccine is engineered to resemble the fully processed mRNA molecule as they occur in the cytoplasm of cells. The mRNA transits to the cytosol, the insides Thank of you. the cell. Thank you. I saw you were looking a little confused. So it transits to the cytosol, which is like the guts. Of the, the guts. <laughs> the guts. Rearrange my guts mRNA. Stop. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. Um, so the mRNA transits to the cytosol. And then the, um, the, the translation machinery in the cell produces the protein, which undergoes like post-translational modifications. And that results in like the pro- properly folded, fully functional protein. And the protein that the mRNA contained in the vaccine codes for is the spike protein on the surface of the virus. Okay. Have you seen pictures of like the virus? Oh, the big like red beach ball? Thingy? Yeah. And you know how it has those like spikes on, yeah. on it? Okay, so that's the protein that the mRNA codes for because that protein is what is recognized um, by our immune system as like, oh, that protein, that is a virus. Mm. I'm going to attack it. So I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a virologist. Okay. I'm not an mRNAist. But basically mm-hmm. an mrna instead of no, like no, normal vaccines i know that you also explained all of this just a minute ago and i forgot everything um it's like presenting a sort of training dummy to your immune system and being mm-hmm. like have your figure it out mm-hmm. do what you want Where, this is what this, this looks is, like but this remember is like, it yeah and then when when the real when the real baddie comes you'll know what it looks like yeah. and then you'll be you'll you'll know how to deal with it yeah but the mrna vaccine is like a powerpoint presentation <laughs> being like you should make these weapons and you'll know what you will know when to use them mm, no the mrna vaccine is like it's like giving <laughs> oh my, I, this, I need these. this metaphor um it's like giving the body like a bunch of um uh, a bunch of like legos and being like build i'm gonna show you how to build the dummy you're oh. gonna build the dummy and then you're gonna know what it looks like and then you can you know oh so you're still get- but it's, it's not even a dummy it's like you you can build the head of the dummy <laughs> you know because you you don't actually That's all you need to know the immune yeah exactly you don't need to know like what the the body looks like mm-hmm. you just need to see its face to recognize it mm. because your immune system doesn't actually need to see the whole entire pathogen it, some this is why like toxoid and subunit vaccines work like sometimes it's enough to just show it an antigen like just one protein that mm. is that is enough for our immune system to like learn and recognize all right yeah that's so cool it is really cool um so after the protein is produced in the cell um the mrna is degraded by normal physiological processes um rots well, it's degraded by RNases, which is which are proteins that degrade RNA specifically, um, and this is important because a lot of people who don't understand mRNA vaccines or um, you know they're afraid of it. I mean, I guess they think that it will stay in the cell and then become integrated in your own genetic material. Mm. But the thing is, like that mRNA that enters your cell becomes degraded like very quick. Mm. It um, goes in, it does its job, and dies. Exactly, exactly. It goes oh, into okay. the cell, it produces a protein, and then it gets degraded, and that's it. That's interesting because I, I, I kind of was under this mis- mi- like misunderstanding myself that like I thought that 
I thought that it kind of came in and sort of slightly rewrote like parts of it your cellular be... DNA. And was but like, here, okay. here's how you do it. And so that's cool. Here's the thing. This whole idea that like the mRNA molecule will become integrated in your genetic material. It has no scientific basis because mRNA and DNA, they do not fit together. You cannot. It's like, it's like trying to fit a circle into a triangle. <laughs> it will not work. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Because, yeah, because I can feel like maybe some apprehension about this can also be like, oh, it makes virus parts inside me. Is it going to keep doing that and just keep producing viruses? Like, I can see that sort of, like, I knew that's like, I know that's also like false, Mm -hmm. but I can see why someone who was less informed would also be like, yeah. Oh, it stays inside me and makes viruses? Why would I want But here's that? another thing. It doesn't even make the whole virus. Yeah, it it makes... only makes the spike protein, yeah. which it, it, which is not a virus. It's yeah. just like a... It's a leg. It's just a leg It's floating. just a leg. <laughs> floating leg. Yeah. Teaching our immune system, like, if you see this leg, yeah. mess it up. Yeah, leg Kick or... Kick its ass. You know, a leg or a head or whatever. It's not, you know, it's not a functional virus. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I wanted to say is that mRNA vaccines are not new. You know, it's not... This, the COVID vaccine is not, like, the first mRNA vaccine that is being developed. It is the first mRNA vaccine that is actually released to the public and marketed. Oh. But we have been studying this methodology before, and we have developed mRNA vaccines. Well, not for humans, because they haven't entered like clinical trials, but they have been tested in animals in animal models for influenza virus, for Zika virus, for rabies, and other, mm. even for cancer. Because mm. it's like a whole new generation of vaccines, right? So mm-hmm. they're still like getting into it. That's kind of cool, because that, that to me, as an historian, is like good. Because whenever there's like a new type of something, like more fundamentally, that usually means that like there's going to be some apprehension in the beginning, and then there's going to be like 40 years where we just like eradicate smallpox too. Smallpox mm-hmm. harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I wanted to correct is that we have had human trials of cancer vaccines uh, using mRNA. It was only for influenza and Zika and rabies. Uh, those have only gone through preclinical trials, which is in animals. Mm. Um, but the, the COVID is the first one that's like been publicly exactly, released. Exactly. So that one, that one has gone through all the clinical trials. It has been approved by the FDA mm-hmm. and has actually been released to the public. In like a record time, too. Yeah. So let's talk about the concerns a little bit. Yes. Uh, We have mentioned mRNA integration as one of the biggest concerns that people bring up. Just to, you know, to to say it again, um, the mRNA, first of all, it never actually enters the cell's nuclei nuclei where the DNA is stored. It, It stays in like the... The, the inside of the cell, but outside of the nuclei. So it doesn't even get into contact with DNA. Mm. It becomes degraded very quickly as soon as it's produced the protein. And it also cannot even be integrated in DNA. It just, um, I like that it hangs out in the cell, but not in the nuclei, because that means it hangs, it's hanging out like next to the mitochondria. Yeah. The powerhouse of the, the cell. The powerhouse of the cell. That's how much I know about cellular science. Another concern is that the vaccine triggers an inflammatory response as the body recognizes the mRNA molecule as a foreign body. And inflammation is part of the innate immune response, and it's always kind of a double-edged sword because, you know, it helps the body to clear the infection, but if the response is too strong, it can also cause damage. I don't know if you remember, but we talked about this in the Spanish flu episode. Some people refuse to vaccinate due to the fear of side effects. We do have data 
on adverse effects for the vaccine, and they've been promising. So the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine had 0.6% of severe adverse effects in the vaccine group and 0.5% in the placebo group. For the first 1.8 million U.S. Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccine recipients, only 21 people actually experienced a severe allergic reaction. So that's 21 people out of 1.8 million. That's pretty good. I do also like the phrasing of like, er, the results are in for adverse effects and they're promising. <laughs> the adverse effects, they're looking good. Okay, You're gonna... well, maybe I, I, I didn't phrase, phrase that Your right. Your skin but... is going to become clearer somehow. <laughs> Eyebrows I'm sorry. thicker. I, I, miss, I misspoke. Uh, Your hair will shine. Did... No one knows why, but it just will. Okay. It will give you wings. It will make you an X-Men. English is not my first language. I'm sorry. Me, my neither. And then, of course, like a lot of people worry about the long-term effects of the vaccine, which have not been studied because the vaccine has been released after a one-year period of development. However, for most vaccines, the most serious reactions occur within the initial weeks and up to, to the first two months of administration. So it's unlikely that the spike proteins that are expressed by the mRNA will have long-term effects as the mRNA used for translation gets degraded so quickly and is not available for the long term in the system. And I wanted to talk a bit about vaccine testing and safety because I can completely understand how some people might look at the COVID vaccines and look at other vaccines and be like, hey, this doesn't sound right. Like most vaccines take 10 to 15 years to be developed. Like how is it that it only took one year? Like I, I can I can understand why people would be skeptical. So like I said, vaccines usually take an average of 10 to 15 years to create. However, the vaccine for COVID went through the same exact layers of review and testing as other vaccines. Because of the dire nature of the pandemic, certain barriers to development related to funding and manufacturing were removed. So vaccine development consists of multiple phases. The first one consists of studying the virus's structure and mechanism of action, which can take several years. State-of-the-art genomic sequencing techniques allowed the genome of the virus to be shared with researchers worldwide just a few weeks after the first case of COVID-19. Then the vaccine candidates are tested on animals in the preclinical setting, then on humans in the clinical setting. So these clinical trials, which have three phases, are tightly regulated by the Food and Drug Administration or the European Medicine Evaluation Agency, which is the European equivalent. In the case of the COVID-19 vaccine, all of these phases were planned simultaneously to prevent delays if a vaccine candidate was proven effectively. Usually they're done sequentially. So the reason they are done sequentially is because developing a vaccine or any drug is very expensive. So pharmaceutical companies usually don't want to to risk losing all the money that that gets invested in the drug by running all the phases at the same time. So they usually, you know, they usually test it in the first phase and then if everything is well, they go further. Mm-hmm. But because this continues to be a global crisis, mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical companies that were involved with the development of the vaccine got a lot of funding that allowed them to be able to take these financial risks. Lastly, FDA examines the data obtained from the clinical trials and decides if it's effective and safe, and if the potential risk of side effects outweighs the benefits of the vaccine. If there is no evidence suggesting that it is unsafe, the vaccine is released to the public. Then, through the manufacturing process, batches of vaccines are tested to ensure that they meet the safety standards, and FDA is consistently involved in quality control. They're in there, they're tasting the virus, they're tasting the vaccine, having tiny little cups. Oh my god. 
small bits of cheese. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, that's exactly how it happens. That's exactly I how have, it happens. I have no no correction. We have footage. And then even after vaccine rollout starts, both the CDC and the FDA continue monitoring the safety of the vaccine. And they're always like ready to to pull out. To pull out? Do not don't. So once again, there were no steps um, in the safety testing that were skipped. Like certain things were done in parallel as opposed to sequentially. But more than anything, this was not a safety risk. This was a financial risk for the pharmaceutical companies that were involved. Mm. They were able to move through testing so quickly because there was a lot of funding. So they weren't forced to actually take a financial risk themselves. So that's that on the scientific aspect of vaccines let's talk about anti-vaxxers <laughs> hell yeah people who've heard all the evidence and decided <laughs> no they cause autism mm. they cause me to turn into a cow mm-hmm. i will grow I will, horns i will i will grow horns i will grow i will little cows I will, out, out of my arm i will bill I... gates will infect me with a microchip god i will tweet this on my phone <laughs> Which I carry with me at all times. That has microchips in it. Okay, but in all seriousness, like, it is funny, but I generally want to do another episode. Possibly. Possibly. Not promising anything. But I I really want to do an entire episode on anti-vaxxers because I think it's so interesting, like, where it comes from and why, why people get pulled into this movement and, like, what is so appealing to people about like rejecting mainstream knowledge mm. you know because I, I i mean it's so isolating to be an anti-vaxxer i feel we're gonna touch on it here because we're talking about vaccines we got yeah. we gotta yeah I, we gotta I, i'm talk gonna a talk about it. i'm gonna talk about it a lot but i'm gonna focus on like mo- like myths and i'm gonna mm. dispel them with facts and logic facts and logic <laughs> but i really I didn't know i was making a podcast with ben shapiro um, oh no Wait, I really wish I could, like, imitate him, but I don't know how, how does he speak. Well, it's not really that difficult, is it? <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. We're listening to... We're talking about why vaccines are actually a an, a plan by the liberal left. They don't actually care about vaccines, though. They don't actually care about that. They, they, they pretend they do, but they don't. Okay. I'm Ben Shapiro. <laughs> I think... I'm very, of... I'm very short. Short king. <laughs> one of my biggest regrets in life is that I have no talent for, like, imitation. You know how some people are just great? because you're a liberal leftist and you don't have any talent. It's true. I'm a liberal leftist. I have no talent. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Sorry, Ben, if you're listening to this, but screw you. I'm not sorry. (laughs) Listen. Okay. Can we talk about anti-vaxxers? Oh, um, yes. Does it cause cause autism? Hold on. Hold on. Uh, Yeah. I I wanted to say serving facts and logic is is not the way to convince them. Me, Mm. Me going into like the... The, the myths and dispelling them scientifically this w- this would never convince no. an anti-vaxxer I'm, I'm i'm doing this for the for the pro-vaxxer for the <laughs> pro-vaxxer for the for the pro-vaccination listeners um but i, I really love vaccines so much <laughs> oh just give me all the vaccines yeah but i really want to to spend a little time like actually you know giving them an honest chance yeah. i'm gonna talk a little bit about the about the history of it okay go ahead Well, let's talk about the history of anti-vaccination because like historically they had a, a lot more a lot more girth a lot more girth to their argument don't say that a lot more uh, meat to the argument 
They had a lot more meat on their bones. All right. They were they were better. <laughs> they were they had better arguments back in the day. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, do you have an example of of any of any part in history? Yeah, so I mean, we we mentioned a little bit that there was a lot of reasonable fears um, because there are a lot of like quacks and there are a lot of um, like medical ethics were not really a thing yet. There wasn't a lot of regulation around vaccines and like there there wasn't a lot of information. So people were kind of just expected to accept. Mm -hmm. um, Listen to the doctor. Exactly. To accept vaccines. A lot of people didn't know what they were actually mm. given and so maybe that rose a little bit of concern especially when like some people experienced side effects and from what i understand a common concern was that the state intervened into the health of the people without um, taking any responsibility for like any potential side effects mm. of the treatment however even before that there was uh, there was a lot of religious opposition. So in 1772, Reverend Edmund Massey in England called the vaccines diabolical operations in his sermon, The Dangerous and Sinful Practice of Inoculation. And he decried these vaccines as an attempt to oppose God's punishments upon man <laughs> for... Smallpox is from God. How up, dare upon you? Upon man for his sins. You know, so... <laughs> If, if you got it, if you got smallpox, maybe you should just think about what you've done. Yeah. And you shouldn't try to, you know. It reminds me of a lot of people like uh, a year ago, roughly, when people would talk about, well, it's like some religious extremists would talk about like COVID being a punishment, a punishment from, from God for, yeah. for homosexuality. I uh, And I mean, HIV was the same, yeah. right? I think that that's, that argument um, people has, love like, keep, using yeah, God keeps coming out as um, like, throughout no, the ages. Why, why are people so pro-viruses, though? How, imagine being pro-smallpox. Like, no, it's from God. And, you know, 30% of the people should just die occasionally for no reason. Next, we, we talked a bit about Jenner and his vaccination, uh, his, his invention of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. He was actually the target of a lot of anti-vax propaganda. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever seen this painting. It's this caricature of Jenner uh, vaccinating the arm of like a like a seated woman and surrounding them is this crowd of like vaccinated patients who are transforming into cows um, some are growing horns some are growing miniature cows from their bodies and this caricature reflect reflects a common fear at the time of literally becoming a cow um I'm becoming a cow. Or, you know, developing cow characteristics. I think yep. the, 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 the thing that people were most afraid of is growing horns. Like, there is a religious element to this also. Yeah, and like, these, these anti-vaccination arguments, they, they spread and were, like, they were pretty organized, right? Um, so in 1882, a lot of anti-vaccine movements uh, joined to form the Anti-Vaccination League. They formed a lot of leagues back then. I mean, they also formed, like, the Anti-Mask League when we talked about the, the Spanish Civil mm -hmm. War. Like, imagine if we called things leagues today. That would be pretty cool. Anyway, they had they had it, their first meeting in New York in 1882, uh, and they made the uh, the assertion that smallpox wasn't actually spread by any contagion. No, sir. Uh-uh. It was spread by filth. By dirt. By being gross. So we don't actually need these uh, highfalutin vaccines. We need to clean ourselves by by perhaps having two showers a month and dunking on these people from 1900 they they definitely clean themselves more and these um like these concerns 
became like fairly mainstream, right? The, skept the skepticism to the point where in 1898, Britain started allowing exemptions. They added uh, an amendment, a conscience clause to the British Vaccination Act that gave exceptions to mandatory smallpox vaccinations. And that gave rise to the term conscientious objector. Uh, you know, it later became used to refer to people who opposed to military service. But back then, it referred to people who were like, I, no thanks. And by the end of the same year, when they had uh, made the clause, over 200,000 uh, vaccine exemptions had been issued, which is quite a lot. And, uh, you know, all over, all over the Western world, basically, uh, and probably moreover, but the sources we have are Eurocentric, unfortunately. Talk about like how anti-vaccination movements, you know, they were publishing, they were speaking, they were demonstrating, they were very vocal in their opposition of, uh, of vaccination. To the point where in 1905, the US Supreme Court had to actually address vaccination because someone sued the federal government being like, you can't make me take this vaccine. You can't force me. I'm American. I have freedom. <laughs> So like, you know, we, we talk about how anti-vaccination movements were, like, organized and, like, mobilized. But to really, like, give you an image of how, how bad this was, in 1926, despite smallpox, for, like, a century now being a, a danger, but also, like, like, vaccines work very well, there was still very high opposition. So in 1926, a group of health officers visited uh, the town of Georgetown, Delaware, Delaware, to vaccinate the townspeople there. And the town said no. Absolutely not. A retired army lieutenant and a, and a city councilman. So you know politicians were in, were in on this too. Uh, assembled an armed mob. And forced them out. Successfully preventing the vaccination attempt. So like imagine if anti-vaxxers today. Formed militias. Like with guns. The riot on the capital. Except to kick out the doctor. I think they would if they could. They probably would. That's a horrifying thought. But how about today? I think the most defining moment in modern history when it comes to the anti-vax movement was in 1998 when a paper written by Andrew Wakefield was published in The Lancet. You know what I'm talking about. I know about. what you're talking about. So the paper claimed a connection between the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and autism. And the paper was retracted. Like, yeah. it, he... Did not pass peer review. No, he Do was... Do not pass go. It Do was... not collect $200. It was retracted because it was found that Wakefield actually manipulated his data. Yeah. And then a systematic review of the topic in 2020 included more than 23 million children from 148 studies. And the paper found that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine prevented infection in children and did not increase the risk of autism or encephalitis. Despite this, Wakefield's paper still influenced the public consciousness and the development of autism continues to be cited as a risk of vaccination. Yeah. And I, I think why a lot of people think it happens is because, like, the age at where autism signs start showing in children is around the same mm -hmm. time when they get vaccines. So mm -hmm. people, uh, parents who obviously are, like, hyper-concerned for their children, they they see this, but they can, like, they draw wrong conclusions. They see a causal connection. Like, they get the vaccines, and then a few months later, they start showing mm -hmm. signs of autism. Mm -hmm. Like, but they would do that anyway. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um... And it kind of sucks, because, like, you know, the kids need to be vaccinated at that time. We can't, you know, shift too much there, because otherwise we're going to, like, disrupt the entire system of vaccination. But, okay, so I, I wanted to talk... So autism, obviously, is, like, huge on the list of myths that anti-vaccination um, people continue mm. to, to, like, spread mm -hmm. and believe. And I wanted to talk about a few. But before I do that, I kind of wanted to also talk about 
kind of the reasons why people are against vaccination. And the first one we already mentioned, and it's autonomy. So people, you know, this this idea of personal bodily autonomy is is a huge one. Mm-hmm. And of course, for health professionals, they they have to abide by a code of bioethics, which include uh, autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice. And so patients are entitled to the right to refuse vaccination. But health care providers are also morally obligated to treat everyone in order to avoid harm to society at all costs. So it's this like balancing act where, yes, you have the right to autonomy, but you also have to take into account that we live in a society by upholding this right. You're also endangering the rest of society. Yeah. Uh, The second reason is access to info. So access to medical information online has dramatically changed the dynamics of the healthcare industry and the patient-physician interactions. You know, before it was mainly medical professionals who actually held medical knowledge. Mm. Most people did not really know, like they they trusted doctors. Yeah. They they didn't take it upon themselves to to so like self-diagnose to or, self-diagnose yeah. or to self-treat. Now there is a lot more information online and you know i'm not saying that this is a bad thing obviously it's great that there's a lot more transparency and people actually understand their diagnosis they Mm -hmm. understand their conditions they know what medication they're taking Mm. um and i think it's great to have a bit more of a dialogue between patients and healthcare uh, physicians however while this is beneficial in some ways this dissemination of false and misleading information uh, can also obviously have negative consequences because anybody can write anything on the internet yeah. and not everyone is able to distinguish between good and bad sources. Yeah. And even even if there are good sources, you know, if you're not trained yeah. in the medical field, like you're, you're not going to draw the right conclusions anyway. Like yeah. you're going to see... I mean, anyone who's gone onto WebMD and say they have a headache, they're going to self-diagnose that they have like head cancer or mm-hmm. like brain cancer, which mm-hmm. is like... That's not, that's not really what a headache means. Yeah. You know, like self-diagnosing using internet sources is like legendary for giving you the worst option. And then people run into hospitals, panicking, being hypochondriacs. Mm. Um, and then doctors have to deal with that being like, no, these, it's fine. I feel like doctors, I feel like I've heard doctors talk about like how everyone's a doctor now. Every, yeah. Everyone pretends to be a doctor. And look, I, I think that the healthcare industry has a lot of problems. And I think that sometimes... It's fine if you want to get a second opinion, but, you know, people go to med school for a reason and they study for, you know, nine years or whatever for mm. a reason. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, reading a few articles or watching a few YouTubers, it's not a good substitute for are that. You, are <laughs> you saying that YouTubers aren't a reliable source for knowledge? Yes, I am saying this. Are Fight me about say- it. <laughs> are you saying that YouTubers are perhaps unreliable? So the last one. Uh, that I, the, the last reason that I wanted to talk about is religion. So at the individual level, religion is actually a very common reason to refuse vaccination. So the uh, MMR vaccine specifically has been the cause of a debate among the Hindu, Protestant, Orthodox, Jewish, and Jehovah Witness communities. The MMR vaccine was originally derived, derived from the cells of aborted fetal tissue. Aborted babies! Aborted. Oh my god. Well, I can see why religious people have a problem with that. Well, they're not babies or fetuses. But no. Okay. So Hindu, Protestant, Muslim, and Jewish communities are generally opposed to abortion for moral reasons. So 
therefore individuals with these beliefs may have a religious reason for filing vaccine exemptions. Yeah. It makes yeah, sense. Yeah, because like if, uh, you know, you don't want... You don't want fetal tissue. No. You don't support um, that. Ver- I, can, I can see, I can see the yeah. reasoning there. Uh, furthermore, the MMR vaccine contains uh, porcine gelatin as a sta- stabilizer, mm-hmm. which makes it... So the reason for that is to ensure effective storage. Yeah. So, of course, that... Uh, animal product. It's, it's animal product, it's pork product, so Muslim communities might find a problem with using that kind of vaccine. So we've already talked about autism, which is one of the the most commonly cited reasons for which people don't want to vaccinate their children. However, it's not the only one. A lot of people argue that actually it's not vaccines that led to the decrease of disease, but it's actually the better sanitation and the nutrition which led to the eradication of disease. However, looking at the actual incidence of disease over the years can leave little doubt of the significant direct impact vaccines have had, even in modern times. Yeah. Oh yeah, like vaccines are 100% scientifically a good thing. But I like that this is a similar argument to the anti-vaccination league of like of the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Like, that it's not actually vaccines that it's causing it. It's, it's filth that is like the main mm. cause of disease. I like that. I like historical continuity. Even if that's not really what they're probably intending to do, I like that. I don't like it because it means that people just keep believing the same things even though they're being disproven over mm-hmm. and over again. Like, how have we not... How how are we not yet at a point where we agree that it's vaccines and not better conditions? Like, it's well, been I think years. We do. I think we do all agree. Like, I mean, like, anti-vax movements still are fringe. I mean, it's a big problem, but, you know, when I, when I what I'm saying here is that, like, most people in society agree that, like, vaccines are good. Like, we're not, like, advocating to stop COVID vaccines. The mainstream, like, actionable policy is still pro-vaccine. Policy-wise, they are not represented, mm. and I think that's great. But, I mean, it's still a problem because people have the right to refuse vaccination. Mm. Um, and what really surprised me when doing research for this episode is that a lot of young people are actually the ones refusing to vaccinate. And I mean, I'm, I guess that this has to do with the popularization of the internet. This is where I, I can kind of advocate a little bit for like mandatory vaccinations. Yeah. I mean, we got rid of smallpox because of like, you know, n- there were exceptions in some places, but like a lot of places had mandatory vaccinations for decades. Mm-hmm. Um to get rid of these diseases like unless we unless we pull together elim- and eliminate a little bit of rights i i don't we're know we're not gonna get rid of like polio or measles or these things like they're just gonna keep i mean i i'm them. a proponent for educational campaigns and also oh yeah i mean that's probably the best. and also because i i mean i don't think that coercion is necessarily the best way to go about it mm. so i think that this is a real problem that needs to be looked at seriously and the like the the contributing factors have to be identified mm. um because i think that if you just introduce mandatory vaccinations i mean you're just going to get more like pushback probably um, and i don't think that that's a good solution in the long term maybe not i'm just saying it worked for smallpox <laughs> let's talk about toxic substances oh so 
I think this is something else that a lot of people quote mm-hmm. when they talk about like why they distrust vaccines. Like we 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 hear about aluminum, we hear about mercury. Mm. I I've mentioned it before, but so mercury and aluminum are adjuvants, and adjuvants are substances that are included in vaccines that are necessary to boost the immune response and decrease the dose of like the virus or the bacteria in the vaccine. So aluminum salts are very common adjuvant. They're not the most effective, but they it has been used for more than 80 years precisely because of its safety. Yeah. So in a normal day, we breathe, eat, and drink 30 to 50 milligrams of aluminum, which is more than 20 times the maximum allowed dose in a vaccine. Yeah. If you drink from a soda can, you're probably going to get some You're going to get more exactly. aluminum. Yeah. Phimerosal is another one. It is a preservative that inhibits the growth of potentially lethal bacteria or fungi in the vaccine. It is metabolized into ethyl mercury and not methyl mercury, as claimed by anti-vaxxers. In 2001, phimerosal was taken out of childhood vaccines, while other vaccines, with the exception of the influenza shot, contain only trace amounts. Even then, we are exposed to higher amounts of mercury, um, specifically 69 micrograms. Nice. when when eating one can of white tuna then with one dose of influenza vaccine. So one dose of influenza vaccine contains about 25 micrograms. One can of white tuna, 69. Yeah, nice. Nice. Uh, Lastly, formaldehyde. uh, It is part of the vaccine manufacturing process and it's present at residual quantities in the final vaccine product. Mm. Our body contains higher doses of circulating formaldehyde at any time than contained in any vaccine. Actually, there's more formaldehyde in an apple than in the hepatitis B and polio vaccine together. Lovely. It's just something that's good to know. You know, like... I'm... What... Like... Formaldehyde is one of those chemicals that like sound weird, but like it, you know, people gotta realize that like ev- basically all chemicals, to a, to some extent, are present in many places. Like mm-hmm. m- a, a lot of these uh, chemicals are not super uncommon. Like yeah, they're, they're, and it's... they're everywhere. It's just like it's just that we mention we have to mention everything that's like in a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we did the exact same thing to if we were as diligent with mm-hmm. like the table of contents or whatever with an apple people would freak out as well too and you know everything is a poison at the right dose yeah so maybe the vaccine will contain certain things that at a higher dose they would be poisonous but yeah. they are kept at safe levels yeah and that's true of anything mm-hmm. another argument uh, against vaccines is that it overloads the immune system however from the moment we're born we are continuously exposed to a huge amount of virus and bacteria. Our immune system is prepared to recognize and combat an unlimited number and diversity of antigens. Children are exposed to a greater amount of environmental antigens in one single day than those contained in all the vaccines they receive combined. I'm not surprised children are nasty. <laughs> but, but that's also a good thing. Oh, yeah. Because that trains our immune system and that ingesting ingesting bacteria unless it's pathogenic bacteria that also creates a strong gut flora yeah and this is actually something that i'm gonna get into in a bit so autoimmune disorders is the last thing that i wanted to mention a lot of people think that if you vaccinate uh, you you get you you have a higher risk of developing an autoimmune disorder Mm -hmm. first of all not one single large-scale study has shown any correlation between vaccines and autoimmune disorders or allergies. It is true 
that the prevalence of asthma, allergies, and autoimmune disorders is increasing, particularly in developing countries, in, in developed countries. However, there's accumulating evidence that this is due to the hygienic environment in which we live, where we are exposed to less bacteria and parasites, especially at an early age. And so we're modifying our gut flora through an excessive use of antibiotics and the consumption of high-fat, low-fiber diets. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of myths and I can understand where, like, why that skepticism yeah. exists. There's but, a logic to it. But there's overwhelming evidence that vaccines are safe. And good. And good. And they are, they've contributed to a huge decrease in, in mortality and morbidity. Yeah. Um, Just the fact that we don't have to deal with smallpox anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a history of vaccines. A lot of talk about smallpox. <laughs> yeah, a lot of talk about smallpox. Listen, like, and a lot of talk about anti the anti-vaccination movement. I actually didn't expect to 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 go in so deep on that. I mean, we can probably go in even deeper, like yeah. the, like a deeper history into it, more intricate causes. But I that's f- a that's a topic for like a future episode. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I I feel like that would be interesting. I, I was really surprised by how much I, I could find about it. And I still, honestly, I still feel like I just barely scratched the surface. Yeah. Because there are many different kinds of anti-vax movements. Yeah, also, like, exactly. There, there That's are, the there's, it's the autism crowd, and then there's the religious crowd. It's the I don't believe in government uh, crowd. There's mm-hmm. a lot of different crowds, and they have overlap. And Exactly. I And I also, I haven't even mentioned, like, um, conspiracy theorists. I, like primarily because I, I I don't really like as a as a scientist I, I don't really know how to explore that. I feel like there's a there's two different views on, on that, right? One is to like ostracize to like keep them as fringe as possible, but that's not really working, right? So the and the other argument is that you need to sort of invite these people into the scientific community more so that they can like be converted, uh, or that they can be more uh, so that they don't feel as separated from society Mm because i feel like that's a big part of it like social social isolation so the Mm -hmm. only people they can talk to are are other anti-vaxxers yeah exactly so there is a sort of like inclusive argument there too but we can you know i feel like that's something we can discuss in a future episode yeah let's do that yeah for sure let's do that i think that would be really interesting like fringe movements within the scientific community i feel like are Mm. really interesting to talk about yeah um but yeah i think that's that's it for today we did talk a lot about smallpox and that's because smallpox is like the it's o- so the foundational. OG. It's yeah. so foundational. It's like the root from all other vaccines come from. So, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have to do that. But yeah. Thank God we don't have smallpox anymore. <laughs> like, that's probably... That's a good note to end on. We don't have smallpox today. Yeah. It's eradicated. As far as I know, it's the only disease that humans have actually, like, killed mm-hmm. entirely. We just, like, we na- we got it. Other things that we're currently trying to eliminate as well via the use of vaccines, like polio, mm-hmm. right? Malaria is a big one. They're Measles. trying. Measles. Um, Dracunculasis. I don't know what that... I'm sorry. Guinea worm. Guinea worm. <laughs> why did it... Why can't, okay, guinea worm. Yeah, they're trying to get rid of guinea worm. I know that the Gates Foundation is doing a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, while they also inject everyone with microchips. Um, the, 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 so their main gig is injecting everyone with microchips. Mm. And then the side gig is eliminating guinea worm. Eliminating <laughs> guinea worm. Um, so like there's a lot of hope for the future like vaccines are this like universal good yeah and I mean like vaccines for cancer you know that would be really cool 
um so take your vaccines everyone you know you should be grateful for vaccines like some people don't have access to vaccines and they wish they did because they really they really help you out yeah but yeah i think that's the episode thanks for thanks for listening once again big thank you to our patrons who are supporting us yes sure if you share the podcast please do we, yeah. we don't advertise the show the show at all except for like on twitter so mm-hmm. we don't spend any money advertising so mm-hmm. any word of mouth is how we how we spread so please spread us don't vaccinate against us we need to be pathologic follow us on twitter at leechfestpod once again my name is raluca i'm mia and uh and we'll see you for the next one get your vaccines <laughs>